Hello, this is Comic Book Decalogue, a podcast courtesy of the Comics Journal and a podcast that asks 10 questions, the same 10 questions, often challenging questions, to lots of your favorite cartoonists. Typically, these are recorded in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This one was recorded on location in Bushwick, Brooklyn, so give a listen for that New York grit, baby. The guest this time around is the very funny, very thoughtful Matthew Thurper. Matthew's best known for his books, One and Utter Mice and Infomaniacs, two works that are smart, goofy, surreal, and totally unpredictable. He recently released the drawing book, Shawarma Chameleon, which you can get at randomman.net. This is a big one and a good one, so I'm going to get right to it. Please enjoy 10 questions, give or take, with Matthew Thurber. Do you have a sense of how people first encounter your work most often? Or, or like what proportion of that is people actually walking into comic shops a few years back and seeing like a 1-800-MICE floppy? Yeah, I mean, because sometimes people tell me when they first saw stuff. Like I remember Karen Katz is a cartoonist from New York and she moved here. I think from Israel and she was like, oh, I got your book. It was like the first book I got when I got to New York or huh. something like that. And, you know, people have these, I mean, probably it's just through the tentacles of the internet, you know, like that most people encounter stuff, but I, I always hope it's like through a library or <clears throat> through uh, somebody sharing something like there's this play, they put on a play of 1-800-MICE in Baltimore. Oh, I heard about that, yeah. And, and that just happened because somebody I had played music with had the comic or the book lying around in the, like the dressing room or something. So the director, person who ended up directing the play, found the book and was like, what is this? This is weird. I want to make, <laughs> make a play version of this. So, yeah, I, I guess when books get traded around, I think that's pretty cool. Are there now traces of that play on the internet? Can people find the performance online? Um, no, I've, I've been talking about making a VHS. Uh, I, have, I have the recording of one of the performances that I would like to release in some, some micro-edition uh-huh. VHS, like some... It would basically be like not releasing it, but <laughs> they're not very good at, at uh, taping their plays, the Annex Theater. It's just like for 20 people. Sure. Like well, I, I mean, I suppose that's for the best, or at least the case could be made that like those performances are ephemeral things, and if you're not there... Yeah, you didn't get it. Or, or yeah, or if there's any sort of release of it, the release should also be kind of ephemeral and weird, hmm. like made of a, a wooden, wooden video cassette. Well, speaking of discoveries, our first proper question, question number one, is what's the last comic you finished reading? Um, let me see. Well, I read all my students' comics um, at Queens College, but I guess those aren't really published comics. So the last published comic, when I went to Toronto Quarterly, I got a whole bunch of books. So I kind of read all these comics at the same time. So at the same time, I was reading Spent by Joe Matt Mm -hmm. and also the Cheap Novelties reprint by Ben Cashor. 
so that was kind of a funny um hmm. funny juxtaposition <laughs> those two books but those yeah those are the last like hmm. printed comics i read i guess well let me ask you about your students comics actually um you know without naming names or what have you are there trends you're seeing in like that body of work that are surprising to you or approaches to comics making that you wouldn't have expected from the younger generation? Yeah. I mean, what I expect is that everybody's only going to know about manga and sort of their, their isolated fandom and maybe, you know, or manga and Marvel comics, which is tends to be the entry point for almost everybody into comics, you know, what you Mm -hmm. see in Barnes and Noble, um, which is basically the case. But then at the end of the semester, they they do produce stuff that's pretty surprising. Like one student made a sort of artist book that was all collaged from the New York times about this tardigrade creature that, um, can survive as like this microscopic bear looking creature Uh that survives at sub zero temperatures. (laughs) And, uh, so it was like this weird comic about that bear fighting this mucus, this other snail that like fires mucus out and that kind of as a super villain. So that was, that was like a really weird, strange approach, like formal approach to comics. And then, um, you know, there was just like this super great action comic and a super great fantasy comic and a comic about an externalized a person dealing with their externalized like depression as this sort of like manifested Mm -hmm. character. And, um, yeah, so it kind of ran, ran the gamut from like fantasy to more psychological introspective work. Do you have a sense of how many of them have sought out your comics after starting the course or, or before? Oh, um, no, I mean, (laughs) I think maybe it's like one, one person in class might know what I've done, but mostly they're just there because they can get credit for, for drawing (laughs) comics, which I think they're very excited about. Like it's a state school. It's, it's sort of new to the curriculum, Mm -hmm. like as of maybe five years ago. And it's, it's also, it's also described as graphic novel. So I think it's very like, oh yeah, high, high, uh. It's a higher form of art now, right. so I always have to explain to them that it's like it's a comics class. It's not novelistic. They don't have to make a novel. That's just the the marketing term mm, that the respectability, yeah, <laughs> that needed to make it in the curriculum. But yeah, it's I've I've taught there for five years, and I keep on sort of evolving the way I teach. Hopefully. For the better. We read Rolling Blackouts together. I guess that was another one I just read. So that was that was an interesting discussion to, to look at. Like <clears throat> I think students need to be reminded that their own stories are really interesting and like everybody's story is interesting and they can make they can make autobio work mm-hmm. and they, they don't often like know that they can do that. It was comics journalism new to them? Uh, with something like Rolling Blackouts. Yeah, yeah. And that book is so much like about journalism and what is journalism mm-hmm. that it was pretty interesting. But, you know, it also like... Also, I don't think there's that much of that kind of work going on except for, you know, Joe Sacco. And, I mean, there's probably a bunch of others, but um, Victoria Lomasco was a comic that somebody gave me that was totally amazing. Um, 
Bella Shaevich, who's an artist who lives here, artist and comic drawer, toured with this woman and was her translator, and she she went around Russia and interviewed different groups of people, like protesters mm-hmm. and people in prison, or youth detention centers and stuff. And it's like all firsthand reportage. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't exactly like autobiocomics. It's more like I'm in the moment. I'm drawing like people protesting Putin or uh-huh. something. And um, that was an amazing comic that kind of we looked at at the same time as Rolling Blackouts. That immediacy, I feel like, is a powerful variable. I often, when I read uh, comics journalism or uh, autobiocomic stuff, it's even more so than like a prose memoir. It feels, you know, especially mediated to me. Like it's almost impossible for uh, works like that to not get a little meta. I think just because you're so aware that this is a story being retold. Yeah. That the you know, I mean the amount of like time and intent that goes into the retelling just because comics are so work intensive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's always framed. It's always drawn and it's always edited. Decisions are made as to how you're going to represent people. I think one thing that I prefer is trying to get away from photography as the basis of, of, of image Mm -hmm. where people aren't just having experiences and photographing them and then going home and sort of like drawing them later which worked well in the Sarah Glidden book, but I think like that's not the only way to to make a comic about reality, or that's not the only way to make journalism. So even though <clears throat> even though you know I make weird weird uh, sort of fantastical stories, like I'm I think a lot about the filtering filtering of reality, like how best to filter your experiences or react to the everyday. So I mean, for instance, like trying to draw a comic every day recently just to react to the world um, is, is kind of a form of journalism because like you're working so fast that whatever whatever you draw is going to have some basis in oh sure in reality but well let me ask you with that were you surprised at how that changed your own work as opposed to the creation of something like uh, like infomaniacs? I mean, was it more, you know, overtly about, you know, these actual times we're in, or just was the quality of the metaphor different somehow? Well, Infomaniacs is probably maybe where the practice really started, because that was a weekly strip of two pages a week. <clears throat> and kind of the more the more that um, the more I revved it up, I mean. I felt with Infomaniacs like it was uh, about stuff that was happening, but it was actually getting lapped, lapped by the events in real time. So like mm-hmm. the Snowden case and revealing the prison program and all this yeah. spy stuff that's coming out. It's like, oh, I, I, I have to go faster. I have to go faster. And then like, um, in a way, comics are so slow and deliberative that I'm starting to feel like this real strength of the medium might be like, just how fast you can whip out an image and put it up huh. without even um, pre-thinking it or um, worrying about... It's like it's like if you have a practice, um, a daily practice, it's going to be useful in some way. So, I mean, really only in the past month, like I've been doing this, this daily, this Mr. Colostomy 
Mr. Colostomy Daily Who has previously appeared in, <clears throat> well, 1-800-MICE and some of your other... Yeah, he's he's been, like, it's this talking horse character I've been drawing since, like, 2000. So, here he's, like, been kind of reincarnated. He's, he's this <laughs> detective. What, whatever that is, you know, it's kind of unclear. Like, a detective just being a person who's, like... Who's trying to figure out things about the environment? Like a detective can be anything. Uh, like you can be a detective if you're trying to figure out your taxes or something. Sure. Like, yeah, it's it's using these stock characters, but and I don't know where it's going, and I don't pre-think it, and I don't pre-write it. So I just sit down every day and try to draw a daily strip, and of course it like has to do with like the Whitney or people in cafes, like on their laptops, but actually they're launching drone strikes in Syria, mm-hmm. you know, and getting, getting, uh, rewarded with, uh, coffee punches on their card or, <laughs> you know, just trying to come up with jokes every day. Um, and plots are like developing, but I'm trying to like, trying to keep them, I'm trying to keep them in my mouth as this, I read the Samuel Beckett story and he talks about this stone that he keeps in his mouth. And I thought, Oh, if I can keep the plot, if I can keep the plot, like, in my mouth as a stone, but not have it written down, but just that's, hold, I'm just holding on to it, sort of. That's interesting to me. That, that kind of preempts the question I was uh, hoping to find a way to ask. One of the things that defines your work for me is um, there's the weight of intent, but there's also a clear element of spontaneity to it and like the balance of those things. So I was, I was curious, you know, when you find these different you know, disparate plot threads coming together the way we see in something like mice. If you're tempted to keep that at arm's length, or if there's a point in the telling of a story when typically you you realize, okay, now it's useful to allow those connections to happen. Yeah, or to to kind of storyboard them out or plot them out. And I just remember, like, okay, a lot of yeah, a lot of my work has to do with that conflict between kind of subconscious generation of plot or material or, or ideas or images and, and then the clo- closing, like kind of drawing the drawstrings together into, mm-hmm. into, like a, into a plot. And, and like even the idea of what a plot is or a conspiracy sort of like as being like a, a grid or a matrix over everything, like you're a human and you walk down the street, but the street has a grid on it. So you are going in a certain direction, right? So in a sense, you're free, but in a sense, you're totally not free. In Infomaniacs, it started the same way, like generating all these, all these, uh, immediate, no pre-plotting, no pre-drawing story ideas. And then I got very interested in making it into a book or then it was this web series, but I kind of knew it was mm-hmm. going to be a book with picture box. And then I started to get into this plotting post-it note hell where I like, <laughs> had all these stickers up post-it notes. And I was like, how can this make sense? And like, it's, it's like t- taking all the subconscious threads and imposing an order on them is, is very exciting in a different way. But, um, I'm trying to re- now resist that as long as possible because I think, I think your brain will always make sense of anything. So now I don't want to be in that hell 
caused by weaving weaving plot uh-huh. strands. I just want it to be this sort of daily practice. But um, no, it's definitely that's definitely like a huge thing that interests me about storytelling. Because there's there's like the Scheherazade thing where you're like, if I just keep spooling it out one more day at a time, I can stay alive, and there right. will be use for me. <laughs> and there will be, I will I will be permitted to survive as a storyteller. And then there's the novelistic making this steel trap amazing plot that's like slammed shut like you know like some sort of strange Rube Goldberg device where everything's connected and achieving that is another they can both be pleasurable aesthetically I think yeah it's it's just like one is so free and the other one is so labored and I guess they're both labor but I don't know. Yeah, spontaneity is important. Even, you know, performance has to do with that. And Like, do you, do you memorize all the lyrics for your song? Do you memorize all the notes and play this beautiful... Do you execute this beautiful performance? Or do you pick a weird outfit that's going to make you enhance your spaz factor so you can get on stage wearing a mask and, like, you know do something that no human should be able to do, like, sure. you know, stand on one finger, s- spin around, you know, which you might only be able to do without pre-planning anything, mm-hmm. you know, like, what, what is that person <laughs> doing? Why are they dancing like that? So those are like two poles of performance, two poles of writing. I don't know, maybe drawing too. It's like, you know, planning a picture. You can plan it, you can make studies. You could have models pose and you can compose it sort of like a, in the way that classical paintings are composed, or you could just like start at one corner of a drawing and like start to organically create a, mm-hmm. something, something will, will be created if you just <laughs> put the time in. I don't know. Those are two different, I, I guess it's just like, it's like conscious and subconscious Comics is an interesting context for that kind of storytelling also, I think, just because, you know, historically it's been seen as a kind of unserious medium, uh, and yet, uh, this is not the dump on superhero books apropos of nothing, but I think they have a role in that that reputation, and yet that's also an area of comics where I think the audience would be more, you know, demanding and literal-minded about linear plotting and plotting that you know adds up to a whole whereas i think you also have, i don't know if you'd call it the fine art world but having a foot in the art world as well i would imagine it's a tradition that's more accommodating to the kind of storytelling that you're inclined to do yeah maybe <clears throat> the funny thing about superhero comics is they're kind of infinite like they don't really have any closure mm-hmm. like they have a certain kind of logic but the logic's super inconsistent. <laughs> it's like, no, this character has vanished into the ultra world in issue 346, and no one can actually keep up with these laws or these almost like legal clauses. So I think superhero comics and newspaper comics and basically serialized publishing has a lot to do with that infinity non-closure, non, this is non-novelistic 
but actually like the history of novels is kind of that too because if you read like Don Quixote or Rabelais or you know they're very collage like mm-hmm. and they don't have a lot of narrative arc to them and we're just deliberate in installments many of them yeah yeah they appeared like you know Charles Dickens appeared in the newspaper so that's all interesting like why does graph why does novel represent closure and then as compared to the art world that's kind of a whole other can of worms <laughs> yeah you can get away with semi-narrative quasi-narrative mm-hmm. projects in, in the art context and artists do that all the time and they don't really have to think about well mainly I, I, I think it's that they don't have to think about emotional affect like if you have somebody who draws in the art world say like Marcel Zama or um, a, like a pop artist like mm-hmm. Peter Saul or something they're not they're more interested in the image and not so much the storytelling or the emotional, the, the empathy of a character, um, or their inner life or, or their, their existence in relation to other characters. It's more their existence as an image. And I think that goes back to like pop art, pop art, taking images out of context, you know? So the world that I'd be happiest to function in would be if, if there really was a readership like a Charles Dickens readership or Uh something that was like just eating up the installments as they were produced and like walk, like walking back from the post (laughs) office as they used to do. They used to walk along reading, Mm -hmm. reading the next Dickens book of Nicholas Nickleby or whatever, as they were walking back to the farm, you know, they could pick it up and like people just could not wait or like Tezuka comics coming out on like, the fifth every day with a five in it, the new manga would be delivered and people mm-hmm. would like line up because they were hungry for narrative. You know, they would line up outside the bookstore and just slap their money down. And that's, that's the kind of like narrative, um, addiction or dependency that, that I would like to function in ideally. But well, with, uh, Infomaniacs, which you said you released originally as a web comic, which is, you know, the closest modern equivalent, maybe, to what you've, you're describing. How close did that get for you personally in terms of, of satisfying the desire for the kind of, you know, work-audience relationship? Oh, well, you know, that got somewhere. I mean, personally, it was, um, I felt like I'd done my job every week to turn in the strip. And I knew some people were reading it because they would comment on the picture box site. But really... Really, unless you ramp up your production to like putting something out once a month and you're getting letters back or emails, I mean, honestly, like posting stuff on Instagram has been more of more of a feeling of give and take with a readership than anything hmm. before. And I, for the record, <laughs> hate Instagram, you know, because it's, <laughs> it's part of Facebook, which is, you know, Whatever. Facebook isn't as bad as Google. At least they, he donated like 99% of his shares. But it's still putting stuff out for free. It's still putting content out for free. I know that ultimately it can be collected or make a zine out of it or make a book out of it. But 
it's true that it does have a certain, the reward is just seeing that people read your stuff daily or weekly. So yeah, a little bit of that from Infomaniacs, but then, but then it was like really satisfying when it became a book, mm-hmm. but then what, 20 people bought the book or, oh, you know, 120, I don't know how many people, you know, then it comes out as a book and it's kind of like, now that it's in its ultimate form, it's not that popular. So how to make objects more popular? Maybe they all have to have computers in them. Like every zine has to have a, a little computer that you use for like a week and throw away or something. I don't know if there's any going to be any way to make objects more covetable. Yeah, uh, because the what you're describing with something like Dickens, it's you know someone who was obviously long since entered the literary canon, but was a very populist work, which is. I don't know if this is a, an accurate generalization anymore, but like with comics historically, like that populist work is the newspaper strip or the, you know, the serialized like genre floppy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wouldn't want to make pandering sentimental uh, <laughs> horseshit, you know, like, I mean, Dickens, Dickens is, is great, but it's fluffed out. I mean, he padded out his stories like, you know, to get the extra word rate. He was getting paid by the word, so it's very wordy. Um, I mean, I think that you could still deliver avant-garde content on a pulp basis. I mean, that's kind of the dream, right? That's like mm-hmm. that's the dream of the surrealists looking at Fantomas. You know, Fantomas was this pulp thriller about this elusive murdering thief, you know, and his crime syndicate and it totally enraptured everybody in Paris and they were buying again, pulp installments and stuff. And the surrealists were like, this is, this is kind of the existing in a dream world, you know? So there's always been a, like, I guess an avant-garde interest in pulp because, uh, it's going so fast. They're generating content so fast. You have to make up stuff so fast that Mm -hmm. it's going to get subconscious. So your images are going to get weirder. You're like, Okay, uh, what, a rabbit uh, is lying in the middle of the road, and I don't know, he's got a, you know, a pitchfork stabbed into his, his chest, and he's holding a briefcase, and in the briefcase, I don't know what's in the briefcase, we'll figure that out next week. So you just, you're like trying to spool it out, and you get access to more weird parts of your brain. I think anybody would would agree, like any creator would agree, that like once you start to overthink it, it starts to make too much sense. Mm-hmm. You know, because you have to make all these decisions when you're doing comics. Maybe I'm tying threads together too neatly now, but it's interesting to me, in light of all of that, that uh, with the new Mr. Colostomy stories, you've made him a detective, which several decades after Dickens, you had writers like Hammett and Chandler writing crime fiction for a mass audience. Uh, and it was not avant-garde work, but you could say that they were, say, like stealth existentialist stories and that you had this lone figure navigating a world of, you know, real darkness and confusion, which is, I don't know, in the opinion of some people, probably the height of that, you know, serialized, um, you know, populist storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that idea of noir, which is like, it's a dark world. I guess noir is kind of like existentialism plus crime, but like the, thing about crime is like it doesn't have to be like a murder like we're in this criminal world our world is super criminalized like 
just in offshore taxes or yeah. in like the the disappearance of like you know anybody having a job or you know, like there's crime in in the landscape so i feel like we are in this noir landscape like you don't have to have a a murder to set things off so in the mr colostomy thing it's like you have to pay for sleep <laughs> and there's all these people with insomnia you can either pay for sleep or you can like work in a coffee shop as a drone pilot and then you stay up all night mm-hmm. or something like that. So it's like, he's a detective also, but he, he might just be like a, like a mailman. It's like kind of unclear whether he's like, he's sort of like a narrator that you don't trust Mr. Colostomy. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So, so it's like, he's an, either an art crimes detective, which art is like full of crime as well. Right, because it's this money laundering business, but it's also art. It's the only thing we have that's free of like mm-hmm. you know market forces or whatever. So and it's beautiful, and everybody everybody wants to be an artist, and because it's liberating. So so it's like yeah, but like you say, also a, a venue where a lot of the norms, um, or at least the norms that that affect whether people can you know eat and make a living. You know, are determined by power and by money. Yeah, yeah, and it's um, you know increasingly a shadow world. So if you focus back on like a person, like every person's kind of like a detective, just trying to figure out how to put food on the table or you know have a decent life or something. Or so Mister Colostomy is kind of an every person, but also they're animals. So it's like in the talking animal tradition, pagan animalistic <laughs> tradition that I love, like where you can talk about, you can be people, they're like people, but it's like, they're more innocent than people somehow because mm-hmm. they're just, they're just stupid animals. They don't know what's going on. I think we're on question number two now out of oh, 10. Cool. So let me, uh, let me, let me, let me ask yes, you, yes yeah, shifting, no. shifting gears. Um, what cartoonist doesn't get enough praise? Oh, let me see. Okay, this is where I can flaunt my obscure knowledge of cryptic wit. Uh, he's so obscure that I've just forgotten his name. <laughs> that name, of course, is Gerald Jablonski, which we remembered in tandem moments after the interview concluded. Luigi Serafini. Carlos Gonzalez as being like a master storyteller. Michael McMillan, probably one of the least well-remembered of all the underground cartoonists mm-hmm. who was in Arcade, um, published alongside, you know, Art Spiegelman, still making incredible printmaking work in San Francisco. You know, I mean, one of the best silent cartoonists I've ever seen. McMillan? Yeah, Michael McMillan. Um, oh, boy. There must be more. But I have forgotten them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and question number three. What's the most widely loved comic you can't connect with? Uh, uh, comic of now that's really popular? Now or, or uh, an item in the canon? 
yeah. other one, whichever is, is easier for you socially or whatever. I can't, I, there's a lot I can't connect with. I don't like hardly anything. <laughs> it's really hard for me to get everything I need to get out of comics. How narrow is that problem? Um, if you're finding work of yours in an anthology like Kramer's, for instance, does that feel to you like a, a fitting context? Does there tend to be work in a collection like that? Sure. That that resonates with you? Yeah. I mean, any context is fine with me. Just the existence of printed material. Yeah. I mean, what doesn't resonate with me are comics about subjects where somebody's like, this baseball player is famous. I will make a comic that is the autobiography of this baseball player. And then 20,000 baseball fans will buy this comic or I will comic um, about a topic like, you know, the Margaret Sanger comic that Peter Bagg did. Like, okay, that's cool. It just seems like you have a technique and you're applying it to a topic that is something that is an issue that people will want to read and to me, that is an approach. That's an approach that I don't connect with. I, th- I understand that that critique, although it's funny in a way hearing it after our, our conversation about comics journalism, because I, I do think there's a line between those, but I think where the line's drawn is a, a very subjective thing potentially. You know, yeah, and I, I'm sure the comic will come along to make me interested in a topic. I mean, I I like Noah Van Skyver's comic about Abe Lincoln. Sometimes they just seem too much like a history report for school or something. And like, I think that comics can be so much more interesting than just delivering a, an illustrated report. Illustration itself, it, it doesn't have to just be a job. It can be a rethinking of the world graphically. And I think the difference between investigative reporting where you're like, you are there doing something, mm-hmm. experiencing something and looking at secondary sources to make a book is a huge difference. You know, everything that's drawn in that kind of graphic novel is from an encyclopedia or photographs or Google or whatever. So like, I'd almost rather see drawings of somebody in a library sitting <laughs> and reading, you know what I mean? Like the directness be a lot different. I don't know. Yeah, that, I I'm just picky in general. Like you know, there's not that much. I'm trying to think of more undiscovered. Ken Reed is really good. The English uh, English underground cartoonist, kind of like Bizarro Basil Wolverton guy, who did all these monster drawings. He's amazing. Well, let me ask you our, our fourth question, which is sort of a. Uh, a narrowing down of a second, you could say. Uh, you can send one comic back in time to yourself at age 14. Uh, what is that comic and why? Oh. 14. I really did like A Drifting Life because it kind of showed the discipline that was necessary to be a certain kind of commercial cartoonist. I guess at 14... I had, like, just bought a copy of Raw, you know, having previously read 
stuff like ElfQuest and Batman and I don't know, maybe like send all the Kramer's Zergots back so I can be like, well, this is your future. Maybe you want to consider just writing <laughs> writing novels or something that, or maybe I'd send my tax tax return uh-huh. back. <laughs> Some of these we've sort of covered uh, in our, our massive question one discussions. I'll, let me, I'll skip ahead slightly. Uh, speaking of uh, you know, tax returns, etc., what's the closest you've come to quitting cartooning? Oh, I've never. Well, I've done I've done other things intensely, to the point where I didn't have time to work on comics for a while. But for me, like I keep coming back to it, just I think because it's so so economical. I'll do anything on paper, like you know. I'm trying to make a movie on paper right now, you know, like an animation on paper. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I ever have veered that far away. I mean, you know, when I was in school, I didn't, when I went to college, I kind of stopped doing comics because I was doing art projects for school and I didn't always do comics mm-hmm. for, for that. But, but simultaneously I was in like this comics club. Sure. So by the end of school, I was still like, God, like this Tony millionaire, this is great. You know, like hanging out at the comics, I kind of lost touch a little bit, but no, as long as there's like paper and a pencil, it's, I don't know. It's always there. What's the best advice you've heard about making comics at any point in your cartooning life? What's the best advice you've ever heard? This was the question. That's right. Question that was asked. May twenty fourth, twenty seventeen, and it was a lovely day. It was a very warm and humid summer, streaked with the window panes, streaked with humidity. I looked out across the lawn, saw the stagecoach approaching the, the gate, and small man caught out with his one of his sleeves pinned to his side walked in and was sitting with my mother for some time downstairs as they pondered the fate of my education and I drank a cup of tea I looked into his eyes I saw the stainless steel resolve of a man who never quit and never knew when to quit. <laughs> and this became the the first day of my life in a state of penury and oblivion with sawdust glued to my face nearly every day. I found a fortune cookie in my shoe one day that said, you know, just have fun. We're all going to die. See, this is this is the interview I was expecting. Me, me powerless in the face of Matthew Thurber taking over. That's all I can say. I don't know who he was. <clears throat> I think he was a lawyer. And uh, let's see. Question. Oh, now question number eight. Uh, what's the worst decision you've made as a cartoonist? Drawing on toothy paper, always thinking that toothy paper is going to work out. Forgetting vellum. The difference between vellum and plate. Those words. I, there's no good and bad. Mistakes are are, are just uh, hidden intentions. That's the conclusion I've reached. Mm-hmm. There are no mistakes. 
you you uh, whatever whatever you mm. are suppressing needs to be fostered even more uh, you need to just allow yourself to um, throw good and bad into the into the fireplace and hit it with a poker until it turns into like little little cinders because uh, yeah there's there's um sure worst when you review your life right you're like you know you're not even in control maybe of the decisions that you made like how did I end up here I could have been a contender and you are where you are but that can always change that can change with willpower so I'm always wondering if there's a difference between willpower or destiny mm -hmm. right so it's like what you're talking about with the paved streets. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so you have a certain amount of choice about what you do, and you can make bad decisions, or you can see mm -hmm. those decisions as bad later. Like, there's a there's a narrative arc in Western culture that's uh, behind the music VH1 arc. This initial bloom of success or whatever, and then dragged down into your own worst yeah worst nature. And then at the end, like a celebration and a resurrection. And that happens with public figures all the time. I think, I think the morality, the, I think <laughs> I have conflicting thoughts about this because yeah, obviously I think there are, there's good art and bad art. And I would have to think that too, with art, whatever else is true, art being, you know, a taxing, often labor intensive way to spend your days in your life that you might want to believe in as much, you know, intentionality and I don't know, personal latitude as you could possibly have in order to not feel like a, you know, a hamster on a wheel as you do what you do. Yeah. You want to feel free, but then the freest, the mo the best I feel is when there's a receptive audience, like we were talking about and you're essentially working for others. You know, the worst thing is kind of to hold yourself up and be making this work and be striving for this kind of like illusory perfectionism that no one cares about. And the best thing that I've done has been to like probably be more social and spend time in, in like, but then how do you develop like really curious, interesting voice Mm -hmm. If you're always hanging out, you can't do that. You have to read. You have to read books and come to your own bizarre conclusions about the about the universe. So, so I think good, you know, worst and best decisions are like so not worth thinking about <laughs> <laughs> because like you're doing something. You just got to do something and show it to people. Don't don't just draw in your sketchbook and like worry about what like you know some abstract person is going to think like it's better to like work with people and mm -hmm. draw with people and have solidarity with people and, you know, start a, start a zine together and actually try to do something. And then even if it's bad, you'll have done something. Even if it's the worst, the worst zine ever, you'll have done something or the worst band ever, mm -hmm. the worst movie ever. You'll have learned something from it. I don't know. Anyway, I'm thinking a lot about good and bad. <laughs> <laughs> what are good and bad? What's good and bad? You know? Because I don't know. I mean, the, there's Hedo Uma. You know, there's good bad. There's Japanese Hedo Uma drawing. And it's like, 
bad can be the most effective. <laughs> the worst decision I've ever made. Oh my God. I think you've at least found yourself in a lane where, you know, you can fail in interesting ways. Whereas you were talking earlier about when you perform music, your approach to music versus trying to nail, you know, like a technically impeccable composition where you've, you've memorized every note. And there, I think that also is a worthwhile pursuit. But I, I also wonder if you learn less following failures in, you know, that lane of art making. Yeah. I think just putting yourself out there in the punk sense where you're like, maybe I only know one chord, but I have a statement to, to, to make, and it can be the same with drawing or, or writing, you know, to put yourself out there is, is really good. Like I see people evolving so much all the time as students or just through time, like somebody who I got a zine from comic from like five years ago is now completely transformed and is mm-hmm. making like much more interesting work. So I'm not, I'm not like a complete relativist and will say like, everything's the same. There's no good and bad. It's just with things like failure, I wonder about what, what the definition is because like economic failure right now is almost, is pretty much the norm. Yeah. I would say. And in comics, it's sort of like you have to define your sense of failure and success differently because, you know, 1% who actually succeed economically. So what, what is that? You know, I've, I've like made a living off of teaching supplemented with some illustration and art money. So it's like, is it failure or success? Like I've been able to say some stuff that I needed to say. When you are teaching, like how much responsibility do you feel to apply these sorts of, I don't know, life lessons make it, makes it sound like we're talking in platitudes, which I don't think is true, but, uh, yeah, these sorts of like larger takeaways about art making versus lessons about, you know, basic craft and approach, uh, which is where I imagine a lot of them are starting. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> I try to get people to make stuff every day in class because like all this philosophical stuff is kind of, you know, the class, uh, the class that I aspire to teach isn't just me rambling like in this interview, you know, <clears throat> so there's a technical exercise every day and in class project and homework every day and they have to learn to use a brush and they have to learn to do a color comic and it's all kind of about timing and pacing and breaking down, breaking down action into panels into mm-hmm. fragments of time. And, you know, there's so much technical information to, to impart, but I can't really impart it. You have to like, just do it. So the only way that I can teach is to just give them tons of projects to do. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're doing more than they thought they could do. And let's see, uh, question number nine. We're in the home stretch. Uh, what work from another medium? <laughs> what work from another medium has influenced you the most? Another medium mm-hmm. besides comics. Besides books? comics, yeah, yeah, yeah. A- acknowledging that most of the time, these people are not polymaths to the degree that. 
Yeah, the, I'm like the other medium. Ours, <laughs> the 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 new, uh, probably. Well, you know, my friend Raven like was asking me what I thought the greatest artwork of all time was the other day, week, month, and I thought that I still think that Monty Python's Flying Circus may be my favorite work in any mm-hmm. medium ever made it's just it's unbelievable it's unbelievable and i still watch episodes of it like i've been watching them this last week and it's still mind-blowing i think between like there the spontaneity and you know the weight of intent and you know the the minor miracle that it was ever produced yeah somebody somebody at the bbc was, well, they were all, like, pretty seasoned comedy people, but it's also, like, this inheritance of education that's always being undermined for, mm-hmm. like, a, a laugh, for, like, a really <laughs> uh, cheap laugh, and and also just kind of silliness, the silliness, the idea of laughing in the face of all this macabre stuff is important to me, and the collage aesthetic and the animations, and the fact that it was written by, you know, seven different people, so you have these sort of voices merging together, and it's so visually, visually appealing, and I don't know, I just think it's like, this masterpiece, it should be, there should be a museum or a temple to it, Hmm. or maybe not, I don't know, no, the temple is just your VHS player, but yeah, that's, that's probably one of my favorite things. And our last question, question number 10. Aliens have made contact with Earth. They seem benevolent, but we still want to make a good impression. Uh, You've been selected to introduce them to comics. What do you show them first? I'm glad that they're here. Because I've been waiting for them for a really long time. I think that the alien invasion might be the thing to pull us together as a human race and, you know, transcend, uh, transcend all this false division between left and right. And finally we'll have, you know, an alien species to, to, uh, to distract us from our squabbling amongst ourselves. But I think what we should try to do is learn what kind of comics they have made mm-hmm. because I'm sure that with their advanced technology and the fact that they even approached us first, like we didn't find them. So they are definitely more exploratory and uh, brave. So I think that whatever they have, it's going to be better than what we have. <laughs> 